The Biker with a Big Heart by A.C. Shilton from Bicycling Magazine. Her son's organ donation saved his life, so he rode 2,300 kilometres to meet her. It took several drafts to get the letters right, to distill her boy's life into the two dimensionalities of words on paper to paint a picture of someone full of energy and love so that the beneficiaries of his death, the recipients of his organs, would know just how lucky they were. Three weeks earlier, the thread that held Christine Cheers's world together had been ripped away. On February 21, 2018, someone on the other end of the phone had said the words that bring parents to their knees. There's been an accident. Her son, James Mazzuccelli, 32, a flight surgeon with the US Navy, had been injured in a helicopter training mission at a military base in California. If she wanted to see him while he was still alive, she needed to get on the next flight from Florida. James was still breathing when Christine and James's stepfather, David Cheers, arrived at Scripps Memorial Hospital in La Jolla, California the next morning. Machines were keeping him alive, and the doctors told Christine that what she was seeing was likely his future that her scuba-diving, world-travelling, overachiever of a son was never going to wake up. He would never breathe on his own. He would never smile at her again. It was time for Christine to honour the spirit of a man who had switched from studying commerce engineering to medicine because he wanted to help people. It was time to make her very worst day a stranger's best one. Christine told the hospital to begin the organ donation process. These few words, as hard as they were to say, would soon ripple outwards, allowing a man to return to work, a military veteran to regain his health, and an ailing cyclist to get back on his bike. Mike Cohen was just 18 when he'd been diagnosed with an aggressive form of leukaemia in 2004. Doctors warned him that the treatment protocol could cause lasting damage to his heart. At the time, surviving cancer seemed like the more pressing concern. He took his treatment seriously, doing the radiation and chemotherapy and even moving from New York to San Diego, California for his last year of chemo because his oncologist felt that mild weather would be easier on his body. The risk had paid off. Two years after his diagnosis, he was cancer-free. As soon as he was healthy enough, he was hiking or riding his bike. To celebrate his sixth year without cancer, Mike decided to ride his bike cross-country to New York. From the start, it was a grind. What he didn't know during that ride was that his heart was beginning to fail, and in the years that followed, his health continued to deteriorate. Even on days he didn't ride his bike, he always felt tired. Then one evening in 2017, he started having chest pains. His brother Dan rushed him to hospital, where doctors discovered a clot the size of a golf ball lodged in his left ventricle. They tried blood thinners, but the clot wouldn't budge. Soon, hospital staff were preparing him for open-heart surgery to install a left ventricle assist device, LVAD, which would do the pumping that his heart couldn't accomplish. The implanted LVAD required constant access to an electrical outlet, which meant Mike was literally tethered to the indoors by a cord that ran out of his abdomen. Even with an emergency backup battery pack, you couldn't go out in public because you couldn't trust that someone wouldn't knock into the cord, he says. 
His old, active life seemed like a thousand lifetimes ago. Doctors had told him the device could work for eight months or eight years. Six months later, though, Mike was in hospital with another clot. His heart was failing. He would need a new one. Heart transplant priority lists are tricky. You have to be sick enough to truly need the new organ, but not so sick you can't withstand the lengthy surgery or the immunosuppressant drugs heart transplant patients take to sustain the new organ. Mike fit those parameters and was at the top of the list. Now he just had to hope he survived the wait for a new heart. On the plus side, Mike's blood work showed the clot had dissolved enough that he could safely go home. As he packed his bag on February 24, a nurse walked in. I have good news and bad news, she said. Mike asked for the bad news first. You're not going home today, she said. The good news? They'd found him a heart. The next morning, Mike woke up in a hospital bed with a new heart beating in his chest. He took his first steps around his hospital room just five days later. The old heart was like a two. With the LVAD, my energy was like a five, he says. This heart is a ten. After two weeks, he began cardiac rehabilitation, where he started with slow walking on a treadmill. Across the room, he spied a stationary bike. He knew he wasn't ready yet, but it became a beacon. And two weeks later, with his doctor's permission, he threw a leg over and soft-pedalled. Christine Cheers wasn't leaving the hospital until every last one of her son's organs left the building. She and David watched hospital employees carry coolers from the operating room. His kidneys, pancreas and liver went to various recipients. His corneas went to an eye bank. Tissue and bone went to tissue and bone banks. That left his heart. That was the one I cared about most, Christine says. As a serviceman and doctor, James embodied the ideals of bravery and altruism. James had such an amazing heart, she says. When a hospital representative delivered the news that James's heart was headed out of the hospital, David and Christine watched as the cooler was taken away. In the ensuing weeks, Christine descended into a grief so deep that climbing out seemed impossible. Her lone consolation, she knew, would be to find out that James's organs had helped people, that the recipients were doing all right. So she wrote each recipient, at least the four she knew of, a letter. The part Christine wanted to get right was the one about what organ donation had meant to her son. How glad he would be that his heart and kidneys and tissue were helping others. She didn't want the recipients to feel guilty about the heft and gravitas of the gift they had received. Two months after his surgery, Mike Cohen got a call from the organisation that had coordinated the transplant. There was a letter for him. When he got it, he unfolded the typewritten pages and took a breath. Christine described her son's love for serving his country and the fact that he considered everyone a friend and never judged a soul. He was selfless, she wrote, had a quirky sense of humour and was a brilliant and gifted doctor. She described his love for scuba diving, snowboarding and motorcycles. As he read Christine's letter, Mike began to understand just how special his new heart was. Eager to know more about James, Mike googled him. They had a lot in common. They were both athletic and practically the same age. James was 32 when he died, while Mike had turned 33 on the very day of James's accident. He learned James was buried in Jacksonville, Florida. 
Back in rehab, Mike had hatched a plan to take another cross-country trip as soon as his doctor said it was okay. The end point of that ride now came into focus. He wanted to pay his respects in person. It seemed fitting to make the journey by bike to show just how transformative his new heart was. He took his time before responding to Christine, a week to process her letter and another week to compose his own. He wanted to accurately express how grateful he was for James's heart and how determined he was to keep it beating for years to come. He communicated his desire to stay in touch with James's family if that's what they wanted. Of the four letters Christine had sent, she got a response to two. The first was from the man who got one of James's kidneys in his pancreas. He thanked her, saying how the organs had changed his life, that he could go back to work and provide for his family. But his letter subtly hinted that the thank you note was all the contact he wished to have. Mike's letter was a balm for a wound that Christine felt would never heal. And so began the emails and texts which proved comforting to her. By September 2018, Mike was back riding and building up his mileage. His doctors ultimately gave their blessing for the cross-country ride he was planning for the following year. He would take the trip slowly so he wouldn't overstress his heart and immune system. Four hours riding a day max, keeping his heart under 150 beats per minute, doctor's orders. Mike recruited his brother Dan, who had become certified as a medical assistant so he could care for Mike after his first open-heart surgery, to tag along in an RV as support. Then Mike asked his friend Seton Edgerton to ride with him. The trip would start from the cardiac ward at the San Diego hospital that treated Mike and finish at James's grave. They figured it would take just under two months. They would cycle most of the way and ride in the RV only on the busiest highways. When Mike announced on social media that he was riding to his donor's grave site, the Cheers family decided they would meet him there. It was only day one of a 2,300-kilometre bike trip, and as with his first cross-country trip, his heart was not cooperating. Perhaps he hadn't eaten enough or hydrated properly. Whatever the cause, it didn't really matter. What mattered was that he had to keep his heart rate under 150 beats per minute, but the steep Kayamaka Mountains east of San Diego were sending it sky high. Seaton had rigged Mike's heart rate monitor so he could see the readout on the computer attached to his bike's handlebars. He watched helplessly as the beats per minute shot up. Both men were thinking to themselves, this is just the first day. Should we even be attempting this? But on they rode across Arizona and then on to Texas. Mike and Seaton rolled along in matching blue jerseys, the struggles of that arduous first day behind them as Mike's heart rate settled down. Still, somewhere in the desert they took a wrong turn and ended up slogging through deep sand. In the first 1,600 kilometres, they got 24 flat tyres between them. From Florida, Christine and David followed along on social media, worrying about traffic and dogs and all the things that can befall a rider in the middle of nowhere. The few times that Mike and Seaton had to detour onto an interstate highway, Christine winced at the thought of trucks whizzing by those boys and that heart. If it had been her son, she might have called him and scolded him. But Mike wasn't her son. He was a stranger with her son's heart. On November 20, 2019, Mike and Seaton pedalled the last few kilometres. As Mike got closer to the cemetery, he grew nervous, 
unsure of what kind of emotions may be attached to meeting strangers who had already come to mean so much to him. Christine and David Cheers were at the gravesite early. They wanted some time alone with their son before Mike arrived. Then Mike and Seaton coasted into the cemetery. Mike got off his bike, handed it to Seaton, and walked straight to Christine. At a loss for words, he managed a quiet high. In that moment, Christine felt a deep sense of calm, as if she'd known Mike her entire life. They folded into a deep hug. Then came the tears. They weren't tears of grief. They were tears of relief. From a mother who knew she'd done right by someone she'd deeply loved. And from a grateful man who'd been accepted by the family whose worst day was his best. Together, the two then walked the few steps to James's headstone. Mike squatted down and took a deep breath, feeling the strong pulse of James's heart in his chest. Silently, he told James how thankful he was for his sacrifice and how sorry he was they'd never get to be friends. He promised to take care of his heart. Someone ran back to the RV to grab the stethoscope from Dan's medical kit. Christine slid the cold metal head underneath Mike's blue jersey and listened. And there it was, loud and clear. The best part of her son, still very much alive. For more RD Talks, visit readersdigest.com.au. Brought to you by Reader's Digest Australia. Narration by Zoe Mernier. Sound production by Ricky Price.